um, yes, there are people here that are better than me at ping pong, that is for sure, but I did major in ping pong while I was in college, so <sighs> shows you how much time I actually studied. All right, we're going to talk this morning um, from Luke chapter 7, I entitled this a heart check, because ultimately the goal this morning is that we think about our hearts and our lives and what's going on. So the first thing I want to do is I want to read the passage, and it's on the sheet that you have in your bulletin, and you can follow along. It's a little bit long, but this is, this is a, an important passage for us to be looking at. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman, let me just remind you, I'm sorry, I can't help this, but okay, he reclined at the tables. You get that? They don't eat in chairs. It's a low table. It's only about this high. They would lean on their left arm, and they would eat from the table with their right hand because your left hand's unclean. You don't eat with your left hand. You eat with your right hand. And so that, that's how they would do that. Usually it would be three people, and then the table would arc a little bit. It'd be three people and turn a little bit, be three people. That's how it works. So when it says Jesus is reclining at the table, that's exactly what he's doing. He's laying down on his, right si on his left side, and that's how they would do it. Okay, sorry, I just had to say that. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So as a church, sometimes as people who say we are followers of Jesus Christ, we need to stop at times and do a little examination, a little heart check. How are we doing in our task to let others know about the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we look at this story in Luke 7, there is an impact here we need to understand. We need to understand the rules of social etiquette in Jesus' day. Now, I thought since maybe we would talk about the rules of social etiquette in Jesus' day, we go over a little bit of rules of social etiquette in our day. All right? So, and not the obvious stuff. Let's talk about the important stuff. At a formal, and we're talking about a formal multi-course dinner, okay? This is something where to be, and I know for many of us, we felt like we've been to a formal dinner, but there's formal dinners and there's formal dinners. You know what I'm saying? A formal dinner, a technically formal dinner, should have at least six main courses, 
up to 15. All right, so what we're talking about now is we're talking about you've been invited to dine with the Queen of England, right? You're going to Downton Abbey or something like that for a very, very formal dinner. Everybody is dressed to the nines. The, the servants all have these, okay? Just so you know what we're talking about here. So here we go. This is, you know, I feel like I'm a, not just a pastor, I'm a teacher. I want to help you guys with this. Formal etiquette is important. So when eating a formal multi-course meal, how do you let the wait staff know when you are done with your plate? I'm going to give you four choices. One is say loudly, yo, tuxedo dude, finito. <laughs> That's one way. Another way, place your folded napkin on your plate. Another way, place your fork in the center of your plate. Another way, construct a smiley face using olives for eyes and nose, small gherkin pickles for a mouth, and garnish for the hair. Now, you have four choices here, and you pretty much have narrowed it down to two. But let me just tell you, the answer is C. Place your fork in the center of your plate. All right? Now, if you're in France, it's different. But let's just leave that with them. We're not going to go over all that. All right. All right? Next thing. Just so... When should one start eating the main course at a large formal dinner? A, soon as the host, after the hostess is served, after the hostess lifts her fork, after three or four people are served, as soon as tuxedo dude puts the food on your plate, at the same time looking at the others who have not been served yet and grinning wickedly, all right? All right, so the answer to this is C, after three or four people are served. All right, now some of you are looking at me like, nah, okay, listen, listen, all right? Another rule of etiquette is that when someone is preaching, the audience is not supposed to doubt them, right? <laughs> this, and this is from, okay, just so you know, this is from Amy Vanderbilt and Emily Post, these two, you know, grand uh, people who know, who've known for years. I, I don't even think they're both with us anymore, but they knew formal. All right, at a formal dinner, when should the hostess be served first? A, never. B, if it's her birthday. C, if the first portion looks yucky. D, if she's a greedy pig. All right? The answer is C. And that is this. When they first begin serving, sometimes it's hard to get the first portion away from the rest, and it gets kind of crumpled up, and it doesn't look so appetizing. You plate that and give it to the hostess. Then the next servings all look much better to give to the guests. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Maybe Bob knows something. How many glasses should you expect to have at a formal meal? Remember, the glasses are to the right of your plate. You should expect to have two, three, what did I even, two, three, four, five, right? And it's five, five. You'll get a water glass, you'll get a champagne glass, you'll get a red wine glass, you'll get a white wine glass, you'll get a sherry glass. If you go dine with the Queen of England, you can check it out. I'm right, right? And I'm not worried about being proven wrong on that one. Okay. (laughs) This is my favorite. Man invited to dine at a yacht more than 50 feet in length, moored out of town, must wear which of the following? A sportsman's cap, an ascot. Come on, baby. There we go. Oilskin boots or knee-length wool socks. 
It is D, knee-length wool spot. This is what Emily Post says. She says, you have to wear shorts. And if you're going to wear shorts, knee-length wool socks are the appropriate socks to wear on, on a yacht for dinner with shorts. You're welcome. I, I, don't, I don't sense a lot of thankfulness out there. Man, man prophet is without honor in his own home. Um, so here's the thing. Etiquette. Etiquette determines things. When you're at a, a meal or even a family meal, in my family, we had certain rules of etiquette. My dad made it. It was always. None of us ate until my mom lifted her fork. That's what the lift fork thing was from. None of us ate until my mom. It was just the way it was in our family. And if you started eating before my mom lifted her fork, he would take your plate and go put it in the kitchen and decide later whether you were eating that night or not. That's how important that was. And we all have cultural, we all have etiquette that's a part of our society, right? So what does etiquette do? It makes people feel honored and valued. If we disobey etiquette, we are insulting them. Jesus is the the guest at a home of a Pharisee. As a visiting rabbi, he is entitled to certain customs as the guest of honor. He should be greeted with a kiss. If, If the person who is bringing him there feels like he's my superior, it should be a kiss on the hand. If the person, the host, feels like we're equals, it should be a kiss on the cheek. But there should be a, it's etiquette. It's a rule. You greet your guest with a kiss. Remember how Jesus was betrayed by Judas? Probably he kissed his hand. Because he said, hail, rabbi, and kissed him. Which is a greeting of respect and love and honor. And you think how that must have hurt Jesus so deeply. Just amazing. To neglect this proper form of greeting in our day would be equal to inviting someone to your house for dinner and then just not talking, not speaking to them, not acknowledging them. No handshake, no taking of the coat, no, no just general talk, treating them very cur- It would be an insult. In that day, washing of feet was mandatory. There should be someone whose job was to wash the guest's feet. If if, uh, if you didn't do that, you had to at least give them a basin to wash their own feet, but that in itself was considered an insult. But there had to be a washing of feet, all right? There also had to be an anointing. There had to be an anointing of a little bit of oil, uh, sometimes, sometimes even more expensive, sometimes a perfume. And the idea was the fragrance brought this, this, this wonderful fragrance into the home, and it, just, and it just smelled good because, I mean, it was a hot and dusty environment that they lived in, and so they would anoint a guest with oil so that you had this, and they would anoint themselves with oil also. And so Jesus is invited into this home. He is the rabbi who has been invited. He's the guest, and he gets nothing in this passage. He gets no greeting, no kiss, no washing of feet, no anointing, nothing. Now, these are not, these are not subtle things that, the, that this person has done to Jesus. They're, they're shocking things. They're calculated to be slaps in the face of Jesus. So consequently, this was probably a pretty tense dinner. And, and you stop and think, now why is Simon doing this? Why is he doing this? 
And we'll get to that. Banquets, then, too, just a reminder. Banquets are very different from what we'd expect today. Homes oftentimes had a large courtyard, especially uh, very expensive homes. Large courtyard, the banquet would be in the large courtyard. There would be an open gate. It would be normal for people just to come in and watch, just to watch. It was uh, kind of how, in a sense, rich people showed off what they had, showed off what they were able to do financially. People would come and watch. Sometimes the guests, and, and I mean, it's these things that they strike us so, it's just, they're terrible things, but in that culture, they were just normal. Sometimes guests would throw scraps of food to the watchers. People would come. Remember when we talked about Lazarus and the rich man? Lazarus sat at his gate hoping even for scraps of food. Okay, people would come. They'd watch. Oftentimes, there'd be entertainment. The people would watch the entertainment. And so they would, they, would, they would see this. Now, before we get on our high horse too much and think, wow, how terrible that was, we do that. We do that. It's called HGTV, right? It's called Property Brothers, right? You look at someone's home. You see how nice they made it, and then, then you get to watch them move in and enjoy it and talk about it. The other day, my wife and I watched one of them, and it was a family of four, and they lived in 6,000 square feet, and it just wasn't enough, and they didn't like the layout of the kitchen, and they didn't like this. So the property brothers come in, and they said, okay, it's going to cost $60,000 to get your house ready to sell. We've got to change the layout of the kitchen. We've got to do this. We've got to do this. They fixed everything that the people said was wrong with the house for them. They fixed it, and then they sold it. So then he said, well, you know, you guys know how this goes, right? I'm not, okay, I hope so. They said, what's your budget? Oh, we don't want to go above a million. Well, you know how that works, right? Towards the end, they're at a million two. And they're like, this will do it. This will do it. And, and, and I'll, I'll tell you, we watched it, and it, you know, it was kind of interesting to see how they did things and some of the, some of the artistic ideas, the architectural ideas. But in, but in one sense, afterwards, I, I'm telling you, I felt a little, I felt, a, I felt dirty. I don't know. I felt like I'm, I'm spying on something, and I, and, I, and I don't want to because I don't want to be a person. I don't want to sit there and go, oh, because I know it's too easy for me to make that next step to, I wish I had that. It's my wife and I in this house, but we need four bedrooms. We need five baths. We need, we need, no, no. And it's nothing wrong with having a house, with, don't take this, nothing wrong with having a house with four bedrooms, but I can so simply, so, so simply, easily slip into wanting something and wishing I had it and becoming jealous of someone who has it. Think, they're so, they're in a $650,000 house and they need to go to a million two for their two kids and one dog? Come on, you know. So we do that too, we gawk. It all started with MTV Cribs, and it just went from there, right? <laughs> just went from there. We just gawk, and we just go, wow, that is so cool. What a cool house. That's what's going on. They didn't have MTV Cribs, right? So what happened? People just came over and stood and watched, and they were fine with that. Sometimes they'd throw food and laugh at people, and there'd be entertainment, and people would watch the entertainment. And so in this story, this woman comes. And she's a sinner. She's a prostitute. And she's well known for that. And in a town, you know how this is. Everyone knows your business. And if you're poor, you do not have the ability to leave and go other places. And obviously here she had heard some of the teachings of Jesus. 
And she'd, she'd, uh, the, the, the Spirit has obviously been working in her. And I was just thinking, you know, maybe she wondered like a lot of people do. How did I get to this place? How did it come to this? How did my life end up like this? No little girl ever grows up thinking, I want to get older and I want people to look down upon me. I want men to use me and throw me aside. I want to become a piece of trash to people, to other people, that they think of me that way. They look at me and and other women hate me. And other men just lust and leer at me. No little girl wants that. No little boy grows up thinking I want to be a failure. I want to be worthless in the eyes of the society I live in. Nobody grows up wanting that. This woman once was somebody's little girl. Having three girls, that just hits me. She was somebody's little girl. Some mom had hopes and dreams for her, and then it just all fell apart. Maybe her husband left her, and in that society, if your husband leaves you, you have very few options. You have practically nowhere to go. She experienced some kind of rejection. Maybe she just found out this is the easiest way to make money. But she hears about Jesus. She hears something about him. She hears something about how he teaches, about the message that he's bringing. And something breaks through there. In the middle of all this hell, in the middle of all this stuff going on in her life, this sin in her life, this, this darkness, she's thinking, he says I'm loved by God. He says, he says God doesn't just, he knows every hair. He knows my name. God knows my name. Something breaks through to her. Has that ever happened to you? Just in the middle of a hellish and terrible time, you go, he loves me. He knows my name. He knows me personally. It's not too late. God wants me. He wants you. He wants me. And I believe that before this dinner, she came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I'll explain why. Well, hang with me on this. But anyway, she screws up her courage, and she goes to this dinner. And she probably went not knowing what she was going to do. She probably hadn't thought this out, um, just hoping somehow maybe she'd get to talk to Jesus and tell him, I, I, I want to follow you, something like that. Now, she knows there's no chance she'd be invited to the dinner, or asked to join in to the dinner. She knew she'd just be on the periphery, just like everyone else who's poor. And, but she knows this. She knows something's happened to her, and she's coming to see Jesus, and she's not sure what she'll do. She's obviously thought about it some, because she brought this perfume with her. But then she watches how Jesus is treated by Simon. I mean, you think about it. No kiss, obvious insult. No water to wash the feet, obvious insult. No anoint, obvious insult. She's watching this. She's seeing this happen. And it just seems like in the way this has happened, it just seems like she's overwhelmed by it. To see Jesus publicly shamed. She knows all about public shaming, right? She knows all about what it is to be looked at, to be looked at with disgust. 
But she can't give him the kiss of greeting. She knows how that'll be interpreted. She knows how much, almost anything she does, she knows this will be interpreted wrong. And so she falls at his feet and she just begins to cry. And her tears are falling and washing his feet. Now, stop for a minute and imagine this. It's a, it's a banquet. It's, it's, it's probably pretty boisterous. They tended to be that way. There's all these people. And all of a sudden, this woman, who's, who's back with the crowd watching, they would maintain a distance because that's what you did. She suddenly steps out, and she falls at the feet of Jesus, and she just starts crying. And you can imagine, everybody's like, What? What's going on here? And they're thinking, somebody do something. You know, what do you do? What do you do with someone who's unruly in, in, a, in a situation? What are they going to do? And Jesus is looking into her. And I just think, you know, many men have looked at her in lust. But not many men have looked at her and loved her. Many men that she's been with in the night have shunned her during the day. But now in the middle of the day, she sees the best man she's ever met looking at her, loving her. Not as an object to give him pleasure, but as a daughter, as a friend. He loves her not in the shadows of the night, but in the brightness of day, in front of everybody. And so she washes her feet with his tears. But, you know, how to dry them? Because she can't ask Simon for a towel. I mean, that's just totally out of the question. And so she lets down her hair, which is shocking, okay? In that culture, women kept their hair up, and they kept it covered. To let down your hair was kind of a, a phrase they would use sometimes for having sex with someone, because that's the only time you let down your hair. And so she does something that's a shocking breach of etiquette in those days, she lets down her hair. Women weren't supposed to let their hair down because it was considered too provocative for men to handle it. They figured men weren't so good at impulse control. Imagine that. Imagine back in those days, I know this is, it's so out of, you just can't even hardly wrap your mind around it, right? Back in those days, women were blamed for what men did to them because of the way they wore their hair or the clothes they wore. Imagine that. They blamed the women for getting raped. Glad we're past that, right? We're not so primitive these days. In those days, if a married woman let down her hair in front of any other man other than her husband, it was grounds for divorce. Everybody at the table knew her profession. Everyone knew she had let her hair down many, many times with many, many men. They all knew that. She lets her hair down one more time, and this time she gets it right. She wipes Jesus' feet. She does it as an act of love and devotion to the one that she would follow. And then she brings out an, it says an alabaster jar of perfume, which many, <clears throat> many theologians think is probably her life savings. People, you know, no banks, things like that. Uh, women oftentimes had coins on their forehead as a part of their life savings. Sometimes they kept a, a, a very expensive, they'd buy very expensive perfume and seal it in a, in, a, in a jar. An alabaster jar is very expensive. And that was their life savings. They would, later in life, they would sell it a little bit at a time. 
And she pours it, not on her head, maybe possibly because she just doesn't think she's worthy to do that, but she pours it on her feet in humility. She says, the best I have, the very best, everything I own for your feet. For your feet. She does that, and then she kisses his feet. It's the final part of the greeting that was refused by Simon. And she does it as a humble expression of love for her Savior. And now we get to this where Simon has this conversation with himself. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of an aside here. Um, you look at verse 39. When, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is a sinner. Now, he says it to himself. Why? Because what is going on here? Simon is saying, I knew it. I knew he was a fake. I knew he was a charlatan. I knew. He's, he's just in it for the money or something. He's fooling people. Now, we know why he refused the greetings, because he suspected Jesus was fake. So why, you know, it's like if somebody came to your house on false pretenses, like somebody told you, I I'm coming to your house, you know, I I'm, I'm so-and-so, whatever, and you say, oh, well, come on. And then you find out in the meantime as they're coming, they're not who they said they were. They're lying to you, right? So how do you greet them? You say, you lying bum. No, you mean, you know, you, 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 are, you don't trust them at all, do you? If they ask you, do you want to invest in something with them? And you go, but you lied to me. See, he thinks Jesus is a liar. He thinks he's a fake. He thinks he's a charlatan. And so he goes, that proves it, because if he was this holy man, then this would be totally unacceptable. He would never have let that woman get near him, because he'd know what kind of woman she was. He'd never let her touch him. He'd jerk his feet away and say, somebody get rid of this woman, which is what Simon would have done. Right? And Simon says, I'm not going to give him any kindness of etiquette because he doesn't deserve it. But see, Jesus did know who she was. Not only that, Jesus knew Simon. And he knew what Simon was saying. So in verse 40, Jesus answered him saying, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. I think about this because... Uh, the, uh, the Simon, I think, is starting to go, oh boy, where is this going to go? Verse 41. Two men owed money to him, a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the death of both. Deaths of both. Now, which of them will love him more? All right? I'm, I'm thinking a, a little bit here. I was trying to think about how we could bring this to our day, okay? How would this be a story that we could relate to our day? Here it is. There's two bookies that are in over their head to a loan shark named Vito. Both of them owed him money. Neither of the bookies could pay Vito back. And the difference between the two of them is that one had a debt that looked somewhat manageable, or at least the illusion of manageability, and the other's debt was so huge that he knew he was toast. He knew he was desperate. And Vito, the loan shark, calls them both in, and he says this. He says, I'm going to make you an offer. You can't refuse. I'm going to forgive your debts. Right? Okay. <laughs> oh, boy. 
He says, I'm just taking the debts off the book. Now, Simon, Jesus would say here, which one is going to have his world rocked to the core? Which one is going to be filled with relief and gratitude and joy and seized with love for the one who so graciously has set him free? Which one is going to have his life turned upside down by this? The little debt guy or the big debt guy? Right? And what does Simon say? You know, it's interesting. I feel like Jesus tells that story. You ever, you ever been with somebody where they start saying something to you and you're not sure where it's going and you're not sure if you're comfortable with where it's going, but you haven't quite figured out exactly where it's going? It's kind of like if someone says to you, hey, what are you doing Thursday night at seven? I go, uh, tell me what you want to do and I'll tell you if I'm busy. Because I, I don't like to be led down a path that I'm not sure where I'm going, where I might be, you know, roped into something, Right? Just now, now everybody's like, oh, did I do that to Bob? No, no, I'm not, I'm not thinking of anybody here. I'm not thinking of anybody here. Well, one person. No, no, no. So, so what does he say? He says, he says so he says to Simon, he, he says, who do you think will love him more? And I love this. Simon replied, I suppose the one who has had the bigger debt canceled. You can tell, he says, I'm not happy with having to answer this question because I don't like where this conversation's going. And so he says, I suppose, right? And Jesus says, you have judged correctly. I love that. That's like Jesus said, oh, give him a cigar. He's a smart guy, right? It's a simple question with a simple answer. And Simon kind of begrudgingly works it out. And Jesus like, bing, <laughs> give him a sticker, right? Because then he turns on him. And I mean, this gets... This is one of those times where I feel like you can see Jesus' righteous anger growing. Because he says, he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? We've talked about this before. Or is she just a part of the scenery for you? Is she like Lazarus, the beggar at the rich man's house? He walks by him every day. And then at one day he goes, oh, he's gone. Did he die? I don't even remember. I, how long has it been? I, right? Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and now Jesus just lets it out. You did not give me any water for my feet. He said, you insulted me to my face. But she wet my hair. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. Do you see this woman? I mean, I just feel like Jesus said, do you see, here is a person created in the image of God. I don't care. I don't care where she's at right now. She is created in the image of God. She is worthy of my love. I want to give it to her. Not because she's earned it, but because I love all of my children. You, lead, you walk around in Newport News, in Hampton, in all of Hampton Roads, and you see, hopefully you see people. You see people that it may have, just like this woman, maybe it's her fault. Maybe she got herself into this. I don't care. Jesus didn't care. He said, I love her. Do you see her? Do you see these people around you or do they just become a part of the scenery? Because you see them every day and you just don't even think about them. They're not a part of your life, so you don't care. So you just don't care. Verse 46, he says, you did not put oil on my head, 
but she has poured perfume on my feet. He says, everything you didn't do to insult me, she has done to honor me. Do you see that? Simon, do you see that? Therefore, verse 37, verse 47, therefore I tell you her many sins have been forgiven. Now, just real quick, reason why I think she, she has made a commitment to Jesus Christ before she even came there is this word in the Greek, um, um, it, it has the, the perfect tense, and it's this idea, something has happened in the past, and the effects are ongoing. Her sins were forgiven, are forgiven, will always be forgiven. She is a no-debt person. Her debt has been forgiven. She is loving me. So here's the problem. Simon thinks he's the little debt guy. His debt is manageable. He can handle his relationship with God. He can work it out. That's what, that's what makes it so hard for him to love others. Because he thinks, I'm a little debt guy. They're big debt people. And so he looks at people like her and says, how come they can't be more like me? How, can, how, come, how come she can't be more righteous? How come they can't be in more, in more control of their life? And he's filled with judgment. He's filled with superiority. That is the death of joy in the Lord. Superiority. And it makes him noxious. And so it brings up this question then. Who really is the big debt person here. Because I think Jesus is flipping the script here and he's saying, Simon, it's you. You self-righteous, superior, obnoxious, insulting person. You don't see your debt. You can't even see it. She saw her death, and she did all of this for me out of love, out of humility, out of graciousness, out of thankfulness. She loved me while you were insulting me. So, Simon, you're the one I'm talking about. Your debt, your sin is unmanageable. There's a great sin in this room, and it's not what Simon thinks it is. It's the sin of lips that will not kiss. It's the sin of knees that will not bow. It's the sin of tears that will not fall. It's the sin of eyes that will not see. It's the sin of a heart that will not break and become soft. The greatest commandment is the commandment to love. Love God and love others. And to refuse that commandment is a great sin. And so it's like Jesus is saying, if only you could see. If only you could see. See this woman. If only you could feel the pain over your sins like she feels over hers. If only you could be overwhelmed by the love of God in the midst of your loveless heart in the same way that she was overwhelmed by the love of God. She needed grace for a heart that is broken. Simon needed grace for a heart that is hard. You know, Simon, I mean, more, more than likely, this was just the norm. He, he had a family. He had a good life. He had kids. 
And I don't know, maybe years and years ago, he, he did see. But now things have gotten it all screwed up. Priorities have gotten mixed up, and he's lost sight of what it is to be a follower of God. And that can happen to us. Things can get all screwed up. Things can get all messed up. Things can take on a bigger, like become more to us than they should be, and we lose sight of what it is to be a follower of a God. A house can become something like that. A car, money, a job, family can do that to us. But it's all temporary. The only thing that's eternal is the person sitting next to you and you. That's what's eternal. And the Word of God. That's all that's going to last. And so this, he's telling us, what are, what are we putting our hearts, our minds, our lives into? So then the question becomes, what do you want your life to be about? What's the vision for your life? What's the grander purpose for your life? Jesus taught the Bible affirms this. We believe this. Heaven and hell are real places. Human beings face an eternal destiny, either with God or apart from God. And God puts people into your world. Do you see them? Do you see them? He puts a family in your world. He puts people in your neighborhood. He puts people where you work. He puts people where you shop. Do you see them? Where's your heart? Where's your heart when it comes to reaching people and helping them come to God? Are you praying for real people? Or are you thinking about, oh, I need to get this. Oh, this is something I really want to save up to buy. Oh, and letting that dominate your time and your life. And I'm not sitting here talking down to any of you. I'm with you in this. But thinking, okay, these people, is there something I can do? These people, as I deal with people, I'm trying to do this more and more, dealing with people, trying to stop every once in a while and just think, what does that person need? What does that person need? Could I give them a book? Could I invite them to church? Could I share a little bit of my testimony? Could I put in a, a just maybe plant a seed with some words? Whatever it is, what does that person need? Because Jesus says to Simon, he says this, he says, here's the deal. If you want to know about your heart, the one who realizes they've been forgiven much, loves much. And so the tragedy, I just said the tragedy is the tear that was never shed, the kiss that was never offered, the gift that was never poured out. Jesus looks at this woman who has been looking at him the whole time. And he says in verse 50, he says in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. In verse 50, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Go in shalom. Peace. What is that? The absence of hostilities between you and God. But here's the deal, because it, these are Jews, and so they would take this. He would have probably said shalom, and this is what they take for shalom. They understand it's this idea of this peace, peace between man and God, a peace that radiates out to people, and a peace that enables me to live in a righteous way. What is he saying to her? No more. No more. You didn't want this. This doesn't have to define you. 
You don't have to be this kind of a person. You are at peace with God now. No more. Live in a way that reflects that. Years ago, I had a friend who was discipling me after I came to know Jesus. And I was just talking about something I was struggling with, and he looked at me and he said, Bob, no more. No more. That's not you. That needs to go. No more. Shalom. He says, go in peace. Go in a state of harmony. Live in a, in a way that's right with God because he's made you right. You know, in the beginning I said we need to sometimes stop and evaluate. And here it is. What am I living for? What are you living for? Is it worth dying for? Every person you see in this room, every person you see as you leave this church, as you go, if you go out to eat, you're a waiter, you're a waitress. If you, if you go to the grocery store, the checkout cashier, all of those people are people who have been made in the image of God. Just like this woman. Do you see them? They face an eternal destiny with God or without Him. And that's why we're here. This is our mission, to be salt and light to all those people. But first, we have to see them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we see here with Jesus, that he saw this woman, and he loved her. And God, you see us, and you love us. It's hard for us sometimes to understand or even to believe because it's such an incredible thing that you love me. But Lord, we rest in that. We take that from you as truth. Now help us to go and live in shalom, to be at peace with you, to be at peace with our fellow man, and to live in a manner that reflects that peace and that relationship. And as we do that, Lord, we impact people's lives whether it's here or wherever you may take us all over the world. But Father, help us to see people and to see them the way you do. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering. I want to say if you're a guest here, don't feel compelled to give. This is what our regular attenders and our members do.